The Poetic Principle by Edgar Allan Poe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Kibbe. In speaking of the poetic principle, I have no design to be either thorough or profound. While discussing very much at random the essentiality of what we call poetry, my principal purpose will be to cite for consideration some few of those minor English or American poems which best suit my own taste, or which, upon my own fancy, have left the most definite impression. By minor poems, I mean, of course, poems of little length. And here, in the beginning, permit me to say a few words in regard to a somewhat peculiar principle, which, whether rightfully or wrongfully, has always had its influence in my own critical estimate of the poem. I hold that a long poem does not exist. I maintain that the phrase, a long poem, is simply a flat contradiction in terms. I need scarcely observe that a poem deserves its title only inasmuch as it excites by elevating the soul. The value of the poem is in the ratio of this elevating excitement. But all excitements are, through a cycle necessity, transient. That degree of excitement which would entitle a poem to be so called at all cannot be sustained throughout a composition of any great length. After the lapse of half an hour at the very utmost, it flags, fails, a revulsion ensues, and then the poem is, in effect, and in fact, no longer such. There are, no doubt, many who have found difficulty in reconciling the critical dictum that the paradise lost is to be devoutly admired throughout, with the absolute impossibility of maintaining for it, during perusal, the amount of enthusiasm which that critical dictum would demand. This great work, in fact, is to be regarded as poetical only when, losing sight of that vital requisite in all works of art, unity, we view it merely as a series of minor poems. If, to preserve its unity, its totality of effect or impression, we read it, as would be necessary, at a single sitting, the result is but a constant alternation of excitement and depression. After a passage of what we feel to be true poetry, there follows, inevitably, a passage of platitude which no critical prejudgment can force us to admire. But if, upon completing the work, we read it again, omitting the first book, that is to say, commencing with the second, we shall be surprised at now finding that admirable which we before condemned, that damnable which we had previously so much admired. It follows from all this that the ultimate, aggregate, or absolute effect of even the best epic under the sun is a nullity, and this is precisely the fact. In regard to the Iliad, we have, if not positive proof, at least very good reason for believing it intended as a series of lyrics. But granting the epic intention, I can say only that the work is based in an imperfect sense of art. The modern epic is, of the supposititious ancient model, but an inconsiderate and blindfold imitation. But the day of these artistic anomalies is over. If, at any time, any very long poem were popular in reality, which I doubt, it is at least clear that no very long poem will ever be popular again. That the extent of a poetical work is, ceteris paribus, the measure of its merit, seems undoubtedly, when we thus state it, a proposition sufficiently absurd. Yet we are indebted for it to the quarterly reviews. Surely there can be nothing a mere size, abstractly considered. There can be nothing a mere bulk, so far as the volume is concerned, which has so continuously elicited admiration from these Saturnine pamphlets. A mountain, to be sure, but the mere sentiment of physical magnitude which it conveys does impress us with a sense of the sublime. But no man is impressed after this fashion by the material grandeur of even the Columbiad. Even the quarterlies have not instructed us to be so impressed by it. 
As yet, they have not insisted on our estimating Lamar, time by the cubic foot, or Pollock by the pound, but what else are we to infer from their continual plating about sustained effort? If, by sustained effort, any little gentleman has accomplished an epic, let us frankly commend him for the effort, if this indeed be a thing concommendable, but let us forbear praising the epic on the effort's account. It is to be hoped that common sense in the time to come will prefer deciding upon a work of art rather by the impression it makes, by the effect it produces, than by the time it took to impress the effect, or by the amount of sustained effort which had been found necessary in effecting the impression. The fact is that perseverance is one thing and a genius quite another, nor can all the quarterlies in Christendom confound them. By and by, this proposition, with many which I have been just urging, will be received as self-evident. In the meantime, by being generally condemned as falsities, they will not be essentially damaged as truths. On the other hand, it is clear that a poem may be improperly brief. Undue brevity degenerates into mere epigrammatism. A very short poem, while now and then producing a brilliant or vivid, never produces a profound or enduring effect. There must be the steady pressing down of the stamp upon the wax. De Beranger has wrought innumerable things, pungent and spirit-stirring, but in general they have been too imponderous to stamp themselves deeply into the public attention, and thus, as so many feathers of fancy, have been blown aloft only to be whistled down the wind. A remarkable instance of the effect of undue brevity in depressing a poem and keeping it out of the popular view is afforded by the following exquisite little serenade. I arise from dreams of thee in the first sweet sleep of night, when the winds are breathing low and the stars are shining bright. I arise from dreams of thee and a spirit in my feet has led me, who knows how, to thy chamber window sweet. The wandering airs they faint on the dark, the silent stream. The champak odors fail like sweet thoughts in a dream. The nightingale's complaint, it dies upon her heart, as I must die on shine, O oh, beloved as thou art. O oh, lift me from the grass, I die, I faint, I fail. Let thy love and kisses rain on my lips and eyelids pale. My cheek is cold and white, alas, my heart beats loud and fast. Oh, press it close to shine again, where it will break at last. Very few, perhaps, are familiar with these lines, yet no less a poet than Shelley is their author. Their warm yet delicate and ethereal imagination will be appreciated by all, but by none so thoroughly as by him who has himself arisen from sweet dreams of one beloved to bathe in the aromatic air of a southern midsummer night. One of the finest poems by Willis, the very best in my opinion which he has ever written, has no doubt through the same defect of undue brevity been kept back from its proper position, not less than the... The shadows lay along Broadway, t'was near the twilight tide, and slowly there a lady fair was walking in her pride. Alone walked she, but viewlessly walked spirits at her side. Peace charmed the street beneath her feet, and honor charmed the air, and all astir looked kind on her, and called her good as fair, for all God ever gave to her she kept with cherry care. She kept with care her beauties rare from lovers warm and true, for heart was cold to all but gold, and the rich came not to one, but honored well her charms to sell, if priests the selling do. Now walking there was one more fair, a slight girl, lily pale, and she had unseen company to make the spirit quail. Twixt want and scorn she walked forlorn, and nothing could avail. No mercy now can clear her brow from this world's peace to pray, for as love's wild prayer dissolved in air, her woman's heart gave way. But the sin forgiven by Christ in heaven, by man is cursed alway. In this composition, we find it difficult to recognize the Willis who has written so many mere verses of society. The lines are not only richly ideal, but full of energy, while they breathe an earnestness, an evident sincerity of sentiment, for which we look in vain throughout all the other works of this author. 
while the epic mania, while the idea that to merit in poetry prolixity is indispensable, has for some years past been gradually dying out of the public mind, by mere dint of its own absurdity, we find it succeeded by a heresy too palpably false to be long tolerated, but one which, in the brief period it has already endured, may be said to have accomplished more in the corruption of our poetical literature than all its other enemies combined. I allude to the heresy of the didactic. It has been assumed, tacitly and avowedly, directly and indirectly, that the ultimate object of all poetry is truth. Every poem, it is said, should inculcate a morals, and by this moral is the poetical merit of the work to be adjudged. We Americans especially have patronized this happy idea, and we Bostonians very especially have developed it in full. We have taken it into our heads that to write a poem simply for the poem's sake, and to acknowledge such to have been our design, would be to confess ourselves radically wanting in the true poetic dignity and force. But the simple fact is, that would we but permit ourselves to look into our own souls, we should immediately there discover that under the sun there neither exists nor can exist any work more thoroughly dignified, more supremely noble, than this very poem, this poem per se, this poem which is a poem and nothing more, this poem written solely for the poem's sake. With as deep a reverence for the true as ever inspired by the bosom of man, I would nevertheless limit, in some measure, its modes of inculcation. I would limit to enforce them. I would not enfeeble them by dissipation. The demands of truth are severe. She has no sympathy with the myrtles. All that, which is so indispensable in song, is precisely all that with which she has nothing whatever to do. It is but making her a flaunting paradox to wreathe her in gems and flowers. In enforcing a truth, we need severity rather than efflorescence of language. We must be simple, precise, terse. We must be cool, calm, unimpassioned, in a word, we must be in that mood which, as nearly as possible, is the exact converse of the poetical. He must be blind indeed who does not perceive the radical and chasmal difference between the truthful and the poetical modes of inculcation. He must be theory-mad beyond redemption who, in spite of these differences, shall still persist in attempting to reconcile the obstinate oils and waters of poetry and truth. Dividing the world of mind into its three most immediately obvious distinctions— we have the pure intellect, taste, and the moral sense. I place taste in the middle because it is just this position which in the mind it occupies. It holds intimate relations with either extreme, but from the moral sense is separated by so faint a difference that Aristotle has not hesitated to place some of its operations among the virtues themselves. Nevertheless, we find the offices of the trio marked with a sufficient distinction. Just as the intellect concerns itself with truth, so taste informs us of the beautiful, while the moral sense is regardful of duty. Of this latter, while conscience teaches the obligation, and reason the expediency, taste contents herself with displaying the charms. Waging war upon vice solely on the ground of her deformity, her disproportion, her animosity to the fitting, to the appropriate, to the harmonious, in a word, to beauty. An immortal instinct deep within the spirit of man is thus plainly a sense of the beautiful, this it is which administers to his delight in the manifold forms and sounds and odors and sentiments amid which he exists. And, just as the lily is repeated in the lake, or the eyes of Amaryllis in the mirror, so is the mere oral or written repetition of these forms and sounds and colors and odors and sentiments a duplicate source of the light. But this mere repetition is not poetry. He who shall simply sing, with however glowing enthusiasm, or with however vivid a truth of description of the sights and sounds and odors and colors and sentiments which greet him in common with all mankind, he, I say, has yet failed to prove his divine title. 
There is still a something in the distance which he has been unable to attain. We have still a thirst unquenchable to allay which he has not shown us the crystal springs. This thirst belongs to the immortality of man. It is at once a consequence and an indication of his perennial existence. It is the desire of the moth for the star. It is no mere appreciation of the beauty before us, but a wild effort to reach the beauty above. Inspired by an ecstatic prescience of the glories beyond the grave, we struggle by multiform combinations among the things and thoughts of time to attain a portion of that loveliness whose very elements perhaps appertain to eternity alone. And thus, when by poetry, or when by music, the most entrancing of the poetic moods, we find ourselves melted into tears, we weep then, not as the abbot Gravina supposes, through excess of pleasure, but through a certain petulant, impatient sorrow at our inability to grasp now, wholly, here on earth, at once and forever, those divine and rapturous joys of which through the poem, or through the music, we attain to but brief and indeterminate glimpses. The struggle to apprehend the supernal loveliness, this struggle on the part of souls fittingly constituted, has given to the world all that which it, the world, has ever been enabled at once to understand and to feel as poetic. The poetic sentiment, of course, may develop itself in various modes, in painting, in sculpture, in architecture, in the dance, very especially in music, and very peculiarly, and with a wide field, in the composition of the landscape garden. Our present theme, however, has regard only to its manifestation in words, and here let me speak briefly on the topic of rhythm, contenting myself with the certainty that music in its various modes of meter, rhythm, and rhyme is of so vast a moment in poetry as never to be wisely rejected, is so vitally important an adjunct, that he is simply silly who declines its assistance, I will not now pause to maintain its absolute essentiality. It is in music, perhaps, that the soul most nearly attains the great end for which, when inspired by the poetic sentiment, it struggles, the creation of supernal beauty. It may be, indeed, that here the sublime end is now and then attained in fact. We are often made to feel, with a shivering delight, that from an earthly harp are stricken notes which cannot have been unfamiliar to the angels, and thus there can be little doubt that in the union of poetry with music in its popular sense, we shall find the widest field for the poetic development. The old bards and men-singers had advantages which we do not possess, and Thomas More, singing his own songs, was in the most legitimate manner perfecting them as poems. To recapitulate, then, I would define in brief the poetry of words as the rhythmical creation of beauty, its sole arbiter's taste. With the intellect or with the conscience, it has only collateral relations. Unless, incidentally, it has no concern whatever, either with duty or with truth. A few words, however, in explanation. That pleasure which is at once the most pure, the most elevating, and the most intense, is derived, I maintain, from the contemplation of the beautiful. In the contemplation of beauty, we alone find it possible to attain that pleasurable elevation or excitement of the soul, which we recognize as the poetic sentiment, and which is so easily distinguished from truth, which is the satisfaction of the reason, or from passion, which is the excitement of the heart. I make beauty, therefore, using the word as inclusive of the sublime, I make beauty the province of the poem, simply because it is an obvious rule of art that effects should be made to spring as directly as possible from their causes. No one is yet having been weak enough to deny that the peculiar elevation in question is at least most readily attainable in the poem. It by no means follows, however, that the incitements of passion or the precepts of duty, or even the lessons of truth, may not be introduced into a poem, and with advantage, 
for they may subserve incidentally in various ways the general purposes of the work, but the true artist will always contrive to tone them down in proper subjection to that beauty which is the atmosphere and the real essence of the poem. I cannot better introduce the few poems which I shall present for your consideration than by the citation of the proem to Longfellow's Waif. The day is done and the darkness falls from the wings of night, as a feather is wafted downward from an eagle in his flight. I see the lights of the village gleam through the rain and the mist, and a feeling of sadness comes o'er me that my soul cannot resist. A feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain, and resembles sorrow only as the mist resembles the rain. Come, read to me some poem, some simple and heartfelt lay, that shall soothe this restless feeling and banish the thoughts of day. Not from the grand old masters, not from the bards sublime, whose distant footsteps echo through the corridors of time. For, like strains of martial music, their mighty thoughts suggest life's endless toil and endeavor, and tonight I long for rest. Read from some humbler poet, whose songs gushed from his heart, as showers from the clouds of summer or tears from the eyelids start, who through long days of labor and nights devoid of ease still heard in his soul the music of wonderful melodies. Such songs have power to quiet the restless pulse of care, and come like the benediction that follows after prayer. Then read from the treasured volume the poem of thy choice, and lend to the rhyme of the poet the beauty of thy voice. And the night shall be filled with music, and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tints like the Arabs, and as silently steal away. With no great range of imagination, these lines have been justly admired for their delicacy of expression. Some of the images are very effective. Nothing can be better than the bard sublime, whose distant footsteps echo down the corridors of time. The idea of the last quatrain is also very effective. The poem on the whole, however, is chiefly to be admired for the graceful insouciance of its meter, so well in accordance with the character of the sentiments, and especially for the ease of the general manner. This ease, or naturalness in a literary style, it has long been the fashion to regard as ease in appearance alone, as a point of really difficult attainment. But not so. A natural manner is difficult only to him who should never meddle with it, to the unnatural. It is but the result of writing with the understanding, or with the instinct, that the tone, in composition, should always be that which the mass of mankind would adopt, and it must perpetually vary, of course, with the occasion. The author who, after the fashion of the North American Review, should be upon all occasions merely quiet, must necessarily upon many occasions be simply silly or stupid, and has no more right to be considered easy or natural than a cockney exquisite, or than the sleeping beauty in the waxworks.